Three Strands is growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Jesus. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, visit us at threestrands.church. Right? That's what they do to you. They embarrass you. They put you on the spot, make you feel a little uncomfortable and awkward, but we still love them, right? We still love them. So that's what this series is all about, how to take your family, the people you live with, the people you do life with, maybe your friends, um, maybe your relatives that don't live with you, maybe the ones that are under the same roof, and how to take those relationships to a whole new level to make them better, stronger, healthier. And uh, we're doing all that in life groups, too, over the next few weeks following up to this stuff. So if you haven't jumped into a life group, this would be a great week to jump on board. And uh, I want you to know it's very encouraging to me um, when I hear you guys telling me stories of how you hear truth from God's word in church, and then you go out and put it into practice. And so for all of you that I got to hear stories from this week, some that are here, some that aren't here, that went out last week and decided to make some new priorities in their life and to do some family devotion times with their kids, to read God's word every day, to start scheduling some fun into their life, um, to caring and serving the people around them in their house. I want you to know that's very encouraging to me. So thank you guys for not just hearing God's word, but doing God's word too. And so today I want to dive into the second piece of the puzzle. The second, I said last week, are going to be six pieces of power that you can put into your family to make your family better, stronger, and healthier. And so today's the second one. I want to kind of dive into that. If you hear a lot of like whining and complaining during the service today, it's because our nursery fell apart this morning. So that's not the normal whining and complaining that you usually hear from the people in the back row, like Kenny and Aaron. That's like baby crying, whining and complaining today. So that's okay. But, so, uh, but I want to ask you guys a question to kind of start things off today. Um, what is your number one goal in life? Now, before you answer that to yourself, I want you to think through, like, not just any old goal, because all of us have lots of goals, and you might have a goal just to make it to lunch today, I don't know, but, or for your football team to win a game today, or for your um, college football team to not squeak out a win against, like, junior college tech or whoever they played yesterday, Kentucky fans, but um, for them to, like, have a real win, okay? So, but you might have all kinds of goals, but I'm asking you, what is the number one goal? If you were going to sum up, like, your number one goal for life, what would that be? Now, if you asked uh, a bunch of different people that question, you'd get a lot of different answers. You might hear people say things like, well, my number one goal for life is to experience great success, right? Or to be loved, or to be happy, or to be comfortable. Wouldn't people say those kinds of things? Some people, depending on the stage of life they're in, might say, my goal is just to live another year or another week. Some people might say, my goal is to get married or to have kids. And that's the number one goal they've got in their mind for their life in that moment, right? So it could be all kinds of different answers. So I want you to think, what is your number one goal in this life? And whatever the answer is to that question, whatever you decide your number one goal is in life, is also going to be the thing that drives all of your behavior, all right? Because whether you know it or not, like whether it's conscious or subconscious, whether you're aware of it or it's just something that kind of happens in you unknowingly, your number one goal in life drives all of your decision-making. It drives your behavior. It drives your habits and your choices from day to day. Why? Because human beings tend to act consistently with what they believe, and so your behavior or your actions kind of 
reveal the real you. That's why people say things like, well, I didn't know what they were like before, but now that I know them, I know the real them, right? Because as you get to know somebody, you find out what they really think deep down, no matter what they say out on the surface, right? And so whatever your number one goal is in your life, it will be the thing that drives your actions, your decisions, your mindset. See, we all set goals. We all set a a destination we want to get to in life. And that destination always determines the direction in which we move. Why? Because I've said this to our church before, but destination is always determined by your direction, right? But, but think about it for a second. It doesn't matter how fast you drive. If you're driving north or west or east from right here, you're not going to end up in Disney World, right? It doesn't matter how fast you go. It doesn't really matter how much effort you put into, oh, I'm a good driver, I pay close attention to the road. I, IPDE, that's what they taught me in driver's ed, right? Identify, predict, decide, execute. And you're like, I got 10 and 2 or 9 and 3 if you're a new student or whatever, whatever they tell you. And I'm looking and I'm scanning, I'm checking my mirrors. It doesn't matter how much attention to detail you give or how much effort you put into your driving ability or how fast you push down the gas pedal or how fast the speedometer is going. If you're headed in the wrong direction, you'll never reach the destination, right? See the story of the tortoise and the hare, right? It's all about steady on in the right direction. And so you are always going to pursue your goal for life. You're always going to move in that direction of whatever the destination is that you set as your goal for life. And it reminded me this week of kind of back in the day, I used to sell cars. Some of you know my story. You know, I used to be a car salesman. That doesn't make me dishonest. I just want you to know that. You can be an honest car salesman. A lot of them aren't. But I'm just telling you, you can be an honest car salesman. But I had a question that I asked every customer I had when I was selling cars. So if you want to get into car sales, this is an effective question, okay? So, But I had a a question I would ask every customer I ever had. At some point in the process, they pick out a car. They're looking at it. They take it for a test drive maybe. They're kind of looking it over, a hood and trunk, whatever. They want to see everything the car is. And at some point in the process, I would say to every customer I ever had, what would you give this car on a scale of 1 to 10? And here's what I learned about people, right? Nobody says 10. Nobody. And I didn't really care what the answer to the question was, as long as it wasn't 10, and nobody said 10. Whatever they said, the answer was, if they said 1, or if they said 9, or if they said anything in between, my next question was always, what would it take to make it a 10? And whatever they said to that question would reveal to me any objection they had to the car. And as a good car salesman, you're trying to uncover what a customer's objections are and help them overcome those objections. So they may say something like, hey, uh, I give it a 7. And I would say, well, what would make it a 10? And they might say, well, it would be a 10 if it was red, right? So I know that we're on the wrong car. I need to find them the exact same car we're looking at, but in red. So I'm going to say, hey, I think we got a red one on the other side of the lot. Or if we don't have a red one, hey, let me see if we got a red one coming in the next couple weeks. Or, you know what, we don't have a red one coming in, we don't have a red one here, but I will get you a red one from another dealer's lot out of town. You want a red one? I'll get you a red one, right? I'm trying to overcome whatever objection would keep them from buying the car in that moment. What would make it a 10? Well, it would be a 10 if my wife said I could get it. All right, let's take the car to your wife and let her see it. And we jump in the car and drive to their wife's office or wherever. I mean, that's your job as a good car salesman. You're trying to help customers overcome whatever objection they may have to a car. Now, as a bad car salesman, 
you're trying to cheat people, okay? So, but as a good car salesman, you're trying to overcome those objections. So whatever they say to that question reveals to you what their ultimate goal in buying a car is. And what you're trying to do is get them moving in that direction. Because it doesn't matter how long they test drive the blue car and how awesome the engine is in the blue car and how inexpensive the blue car is. If they hate blue, there's a good chance they're not going to buy the blue car. Do you understand? So you're trying to uncover what is your destination? What is your goal in buying a car? What is your goal in life? Because what I want to do is help you get headed in the right direction so you can get to the goal. That's what we're talking about today. So I asked myself this question, does God have a goal for my life? Now I know he's got lots of goals, lots of things he wants me to do with my day from day to day, lots of things he wants you to do, lots of things he wants you to believe, right? And, and he has a lot of dreams and plans for your life, but does he have one that's like above all the rest, like one goal that stands apart in God's mind for your life it's like, hey, if I could pick any one thing for you to do, this is the one thing I'd want you to put above all the other plans and dreams and goals I got for you. What would that be? And I'm going to read it to you. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Let me read you the first half of the verse. It's pretty obvious. Here's God's goal for your life. You ready? Let love be your highest goal, your top priority, your most important destination, love. And so today I want to talk with you guys about the second piece of this puzzle, the power of love. Now, everybody that's like in my generation or even a little older, go ahead and cue the song in your head, right? If you're younger, you don't know what I'm talking about, just look it up. Go home today, look it up. Look it up on your phone now if you're not paying attention, and just look it up now, the power of love. You'll see what I mean, right? So everybody's like got the song going in their head, and you won't be able to help it. It'll be going in your head the rest of the service now, because that's what it was doing for me all week, okay? So, and I might even bust into it. If you weren't all here, I'd just bust into it right now. I'd be thinking that, but it'd be very embarrassing, so I'm not going to do that. The power of love, right? And I think you could go anywhere in the world, any culture in the world, and ask anybody, and unless they're just kind of like crazy or out of their mind or, or, or like, you know, some kind of handicap that keeps them from rational thinking, you would be hard-pressed to find anybody in this world that wouldn't say love is important, Right? The love's an important thing that's hard to function in healthy relationship without love. That's kind of a universal belief and feeling. But that only works if we have the correct definition of love. If everybody means something different, then it won't work. So I want to give you guys the correct definition of love today. Now, it might not be what you think, and it might not necessarily even be what I think all the time, but it's what God thinks. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say he's got the correct definition. I'll work through it with you in God's word to show it to you in just a second. But let me give it to you first. If you're a note taker, you can jot, jot it down. But here's the right definition of love. You ready? It's a choice to sacrifice self for the benefit of someone else. It's really four components. We could spend the whole sermon, the rest of the sermon, just on that definition, right? It's a choice to sacrifice self for the benefit of someone else, right? It isn't just a choice to sacrifice self. It's got to be for the benefit of someone else, too. Does that make sense? So, but it's all those things. Right? That's going to be our working definition. I want to show it to you in God's Word, see if we're all on the same page, and then see if we can do a better job of actually loving the people in our life who are family and friends. 
And if we can do that, I promise you, just like last week I promised, if you'll make some God priorities in your family, your family will be stronger, healthier, better. I can promise you, if you learn how to love people in your house, in your family, in your sphere of friends, if you learn to love them like that, choosing to sacrifice self for their better, for their benefit, your relationships will be stronger, healthier, better. That's the goal today. And what stands in the way of that goal in our culture a lot of times is that we kind of cheapen the word love. And, and we had a guys-only life group this summer, and it was one of the things we talked about in that group. And so, uh, but, but it kind of came back up again as I was studying this week. But we kind of cheapen that word love, don't we? I mean, don't we throw the word love around for everything? Oh, I love that candy bar. Really? Like you love that candy bar? Like if everybody else in the world was gone and all you had was that candy bar, you'd just feel love. Like, is that what we're talking about? I, I love, I love my favorite team. I love getting up late. I love not setting the alarm. I love taking days off work. I love, we throw that word around for everything. And really what we mean when we say it is, I have a really good feeling inside about that thing. I love that candy bar. I really feel good when I eat that candy bar. Isn't that what we mean? It's a feeling we get. It could come and go because when I grew up, I didn't love a whole lot of vegetables. But now I love a whole lot more vegetables. And uh, when you're growing up, sometimes you won't even hardly eat certain foods. And then you get older and they become like some of your favorite foods. Like I wouldn't even hardly eat a cheeseburger growing up. I always wanted chicken nuggets and hot dogs. But now I love burgers. How's that happen? Because love, when you're referencing it in terms of how you feel, can change all the time. You really mean it to mean it's just this thing I like a lot. And so you throw that word around, it kind of cheapens it. But that's not what we're talking about in this session today. I want to read you kind of our key paragraph we're going to look at today. If you want to look it up, it's in 1 John chapter 4. The verses will be on the screen. But let me read you the whole paragraph and then just give you a couple thoughts on it. John, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Listen to this description of love. Ready? Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Now, check this verse, verse 8, because it's a little scary. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God doesn't just love. He is love. He is the source of love. It all streams out of him. And if you don't love, if you don't love, you ready? You don't know God. Now, that should be alarming. Like, like last week where the Bible said, if you don't care for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. This week, we're looking at this verse that says, like, if you don't love, and I don't mean, like, have a warm, fuzzy feeling about stuff. I mean God's definition of love. Sacrificing myself for the benefit of someone else. If I don't love like that, then no matter what I say and no matter what I do, I don't know God. And that should be scary to us. Look at the rest of the paragraph. God showed how much he loved us, and here's this idea, by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. So obviously there's fake love. 
And I kind of referenced it a little bit. There's fake love. This is real love. Not that we love God. Not that we did something for him and he's repaying us. Not that we earned it and he's giving us extra credit for it. Not that, not that we did anything to him and now he's saying, because you did this, I will in response love you back. No, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice, there's that word from the definition, to take away our sins for the benefit of someone else. In, in a lot of translations, if you have like a KJV or something, that word in the KJV is propitiation, propitiation. Big $2 theology word. It just means what that translation says, that he is the righteous sacrifice for all of God's anger against us, that God is angry at the world for sinning. And Jesus said, I'll take all that anger on me and sacrifice my own life to endure the anger they deserve. I will sacrifice self for the benefit of other people. Love. This is real love. In fact, at one point, Jesus records it this way. There is no greater love that you can have than you would give your own life for someone else. Sacrifice yourself for the benefit of someone else. Real love. Look at the rest of it. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. I think that's so amazing. Because if I'm writing the Bible, that verse would say, dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love him back. Isn't that what it should say? In my head, that's what makes sense. Okay, God loves me so much, so I should love him back. But that's not what he says. Since God loved us that much, how much? Enough to sacrifice himself for my benefit, I should in turn love each other. It's crazy. It doesn't make sense in my head. But listen to the rest of it. No one has ever seen God. Have you ever seen God? No, you haven't, you liar. Have you ever seen God? No. But, but, if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression inside of us. 1 John 4, 7 to 12, key paragraph for this topic. Hang on to it in your head. There's so much to unpack in that paragraph. We could spend a week just on that, and we're not going to do it. But I just wanted to read it to you. And then I want to talk about love for just a second. So if you back up to John's gospel where he records all the things, a lot of the things Jesus said, Jesus says it this way in John 13, 34. Let me read it to you. John 13, 34. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. A new commandment. Here's the commandment. You ready? Love each other. And we just read what love looked like, what it sounds like, what it is. Jesus gives us this command, and he calls it a new commandment. He says, love each other each other. Do you understand what I'm, okay, here's what I'm getting at. You ready? If we're going to love our families better, if you're going to love the people in your life the way God is telling you to love them, you're going to have to do something new, something different, a new commandment, Jesus says. It can't be just like you've always been. It can't be like you were raised. Why? Because you might have been raised in a bunch of dysfunction. Is that okay to say? 
Can, can we own that? My kids are being raised in some dysfunction. Why? Because I'm not perfect. And so Jesus is going to have to command me to do some new things because naturally I'm going to screw some stuff up. Does that make sense? And the new commandment is that we would love each other. Do you see that it's a choice to sacrifice self for the benefit of others? It's not a feeling. Why? Because you can't command somebody's emotions. Try it right now. You feel like you're happy right now? I want you to right now be sad. You can't do that. I, I can't turn on and off my emotions. They are what they are. Jesus, God in the Bible, never commands our emotions. He always commands our actions. Why? Because your emotions are what they are. But you can act correctly in spite of your emotions. If I get angry, I don't have to punch somebody, do I? I can control myself. I can make a choice to act correctly even when my emotions say to do something else. Love is a choice, not a feeling. God doesn't command us to feel certain ways. This is one of my great mistakes in parenting. I really, really struggle with this because I don't like it when people cry around me. I'm not a big crier. It makes me uncomfortable. And so when my kids get sad and they cry, a lot of times I'll find myself saying things. Maybe this is you too, Sam, preach. Maybe this is us, right? You find yourself saying things like, stop crying. There's nothing to be sad about. Stop being sad. You have a good life. They can't stop being sad. I'm asking them to do the impossible. But it's just, it gets to me so bad that I find myself making that mistake over and over. And so if we're going to choose love, then we're going to have to do some new things. Are you with me on that? Why? Because if you want to see something you've never seen before, guess what you got to do? you got to do something you've never done before, okay? So if you want your marriage to be stronger, healthier, better, if you want your relationship with your kids or your grandkids or your nieces and nephews to be stronger, healthier, and better, if you want your friendships to be stronger, healthier, and better, if you want your dating relationships to be stronger, healthier, and better, then you've got to do some new things to love the right way. That's what I want to give you the rest of our time today. I want to break down for you the four new things you're going to have to do. Jesus is going to be our role model in this, okay, because I'm going to show it to you. And the four things you're going to have to go out of here today and choose to do new to love people better. You ready? Here's the first one. You're going to have to have a new pattern, a new pattern. See what I just said two minutes ago, because most of us are living dysfunctionally, right? So we've got to change the pattern. The way we've been doing it has gotten us where? Broken relationships, distant marriages, kids that can't stand us, Marriage after marriage after marriage. What if we tried something new? A new pattern. So what was Jesus' pattern? What, what was his pattern that is an example for us to break all the family baggage that we bring into real love and do it God's way instead? Well, here's the second half of that verse I read where Jesus said, a new commandment I give you to love one another. Here's the second half. Look at what he says. The second half of verse 34 in John chapter, what I was, 30, 13, Jesus said this, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. All right, that's the pattern, you ready? Just like Jesus loves, I should love. So how did Jesus love? Here it is, you ready? Let me give you the three things that I think sum up the pattern of Jesus' love. Here they are, you ready? He loved unconditionally. 
unconditionally. Nobody had to earn it. He didn't look at anybody and say, like, if you perform well for me, then I'll really love you. If you love me, you'd, all right? So anytime you're in a relationship with anybody, if you hear the words, if you love me, you would blank, that's not unconditional love. I know you might have heard that your whole life. You might have heard your parents say it. You might have said it for the last 20 years to your spouse. But get it out of the vocabulary because you need a new pattern. I love you no matter what. That's unconditional. You with me? That's how Jesus loved people. He didn't love only certain people. He didn't pick and choose those who could benefit him if he would love them. He never told people they had to earn it. He just loved unconditionally everybody. Okay? Here's the second piece of Jesus' pattern of how to love. Ready? He loved consistently. He didn't take days off. I, I can't even tell you how many times I just feel like saying, just leave me alone, I'm having a bad day. How many of you said that? I'm not even trying to hear what you're trying to say today. You don't get to take, if you're going to follow Jesus' plan for your family, if you're going to do what God says to do and love his way to take your family to a whole new level and to make your friendships stronger, better, healthier, you don't get to take days off from loving. Consistently. You're always on the clock. And then here's the third one. Jesus loved with boundaries. You say he did? Well, he was crucified. Yeah, but if you look at Jesus' life up until that point, he always had boundaries in his relationships. There were some people Jesus didn't answer. He just couldn't even answer them. There were some people that spoke something, and Jesus corrected them. He, he didn't just shake his head and nod no matter what anybody said. No, he set the record straight. He spoke truth no matter what somebody said or how it hurt their feelings, he was going to speak truth to them. He put up some boundaries. At one time, at one point, Jesus even said, hey, let your yes be yes and your no be no. What's that mean? It means don't lie to me. Don't lie to everybody else. Just be real. Stop being a phony and fake. I'm calling you out for being fake. Now, that could have hurt their feelings, but he still said it. Why? Because boundaries are necessary to love in the right way. Lo loving somebody isn't just letting them get away with anything they want. Jesus was never anybody's doormat. They never walked all over him. He always called them out on lies. He always spoke the truth. And when they did something that was wrong, he did everything he could do to correct it. Boundaries. You need them. Boundaries are really just a, a, a psychology way of saying or a, or a therapist way of saying like it's saying what is okay and what's not okay and if you're going to love the people in your life well you got to be able to draw some of those lines you got to be able to tell them what's okay and what's not okay and and uh, uh, dr Brene brown said it this way listen to this when you set boundaries you won't be as sweet as you used to be but you will be more loving and she also said this, daring to set boundaries is having the courage to love at the risk of disappointing. And there's so many people out there that say, I love my kids, I love my grandkids, I love my friends. But what they mean by that is I just let them do whatever they want. I just let them say whatever they feel like saying. Oh, I don't confront them. I don't speak the truth. I don't draw any boundaries. It's not good for their development if I tell them not to rip open all the, uh, all, all the stuff on the shelves inside of Kroger. No, yes, it is. 
Tell them to stop knocking stuff off the shelf. Smack them around in the, on the behind a little bit. It's okay. They need some boundaries. Your three-year-old doesn't need to play in traffic. It's okay. Tell them it's not okay. What is and is not okay is good for people. It doesn't make you less loving. It might make you less sweet. And it does take courage, but it will make you more loving. You need a new pattern, a pattern of loving unconditionally, consistently with some boundaries. But you also need a new security, a new security. See, we all bring insecurities into our relationships, every relationship. And then we tend to look for security from the person we're in relationship with. That is a recipe for disaster. In fact, I would say, my opinion, that that is the number one problem with all dating and marriage relationships in our culture. That you come into the relationship with insecurities and then you look to the other person in the relationship to meet those insecurities. But no relationship on earth can withstand the responsibility of making you feel good about yourself. It's impossible. And when you believe the lie that it is, because on day one we just talk forever. Oh, he just understands me and he knows me. He gets me. We're like connected. And then 10 years later, you're like, I hate your face. I hate your face. I can't even stand to look at you. Get out. What happened? They probably didn't even change. What happened was you dumped the weight of responsibility on them to make you feel good about you and they can't do it. So where did Jesus get his security from? I want to take you to a story where Jesus gets baptized. And as soon as he gets baptized, God's voice shouts out of heaven. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. A voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Man, we could spend a whole sermon just on that too. God identifies him. You're mine. You're my son. Not only you're my son, you make me really happy. You'll see over and over in Jesus' life, he'll go off by himself to pray, to be alone with God. He got all of his security, all of who he was from God the Father, not from the people around him. If he got it from the people around him, he'd have been super insecure because they all on him. But he didn't. He got it from God because only God can give you the constant approval, the constant validation, the constant encouragement you need. Yeah, encouragement from the person you're dating is cool. Yeah, 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 validation from your parents is awesome. But if that's what you're counting on to make you feel secure, you better hope they don't ever have a bad day. Or you're going to start to doubt yourself. See, in Christ, I know who I am, and I know whose I am. Look at how Paul writes it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. So you are complete, not in your dating partner, not in your friends, not by your sports teammates, not by your husband or wife. No, you are complete through your union, through your connection with Christ. You need a new security. And I'm telling you, this is wrecking relationships all over the place. And you all see it. Even non-Christians see it. Somebody starts dating somebody and all of a sudden all their old friends are dead to them. Because their whole world's about the person they just started dating. They start dating somebody, and, and they can't even make it to work anymore. They're so wrapped up in this person. I can't sleep because I have to stay up all night talking to them, snapping them, showing them some weird picture of my face just so they know I'm still here, saying, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. That isn't love. And then you marry them two months later because they're the one. 
And then two years later, it's over. You're like, what happened? What happened was you looked to that person to be your source of security. And as soon as they let you down, they just, you decide they didn't love you anymore. And you didn't have to put up with this. So you walk away. And it wasn't even love to start with. You need a new security. You also need a new purpose. Remember the 1 Corinthians 14 passage I said at the beginning? Let love be your highest goal. You need a new purpose. Your purpose is to be this reflection of God's love to other people around you. Look at John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus said this, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How will people know Jesus? How will they know you follow him? Only by the fact that you're loving each other. This is why serving roles in our church are so important. This is why I hammer them and harp on them. And people sit out there and they think, he's trying to make me feel guilty. No, I'm not. I just know what life's going to look like if you don't ever serve somebody else. I know what's going to happen. You're going to get super selfish, super self-centered, focused on your own growth, your own life, and your purpose is no longer going to be about loving each other. You're going to replace God's highest goal for your life with some lesser goal. And I've watched this play out over the years so many times. And I love you. If you're sitting here thinking I'm talking about you, I promise I'm not. I could be talking about one of hundreds of people that have come through the doors of this church. And we've begged them to get involved serving somebody else. And there's always a reason not to. I don't have the time. I don't have the ability. I don't really think that's the right fit for me. Okay, but I'm telling you, I've seen it. This is exactly how it plays out. You ready? They come to this church, and they love it. Oh, man, I love the music. The preaching's okay, mostly when Kenny preaches. It's excellent. They're like, I like it. I like, I like the vibe. I like the atmosphere. I like the donuts. I like everything about this church. I'm going to come back. It's the greatest church I've ever been in. They come back, and they love it, and they sit here for a couple months. They're like, man. And you're like, hey, why don't you get plugged into a serving room? Oh, I'm a little scared of that. I don't really think that's my thing. I don't know if I'd know what to say. I don't know if I'd know what to do. And they don't, okay, I gave you a shot, man, I gave you a shot. And they don't, and they keep coming, and they're soaking up information, and they're singing out loud, and they love it, it's all good. And then eventually, they start to only come about every other week. And they still like it, but it just feels like a chore when they wake up. And so every once in a while, they just kind of stay home, and they sleep in, they watch TV, or they hang out with the family, or whatever. And then, every, and then before long, they start to come once every six weeks, and... And before long, they just kind of disappear, and everybody's like, I don't understand what happened. They really loved it. They really loved it. They did. But if the purpose for being here is all about you, eventually that will lose all your passion inside of you for it. You'll decide you can stay home, find a better preacher on TV. <laughs> you can find a better worship band on YouTube. You can turn the lights down in your own room if you want. You can go buy your own donuts because, you know, you're an adult and you got a job now, and so they're not that expensive. You can get your own donut. And if you're coming just for you, it's okay. It just won't be the highest goal because the highest goal is to love each other. And that's why we drive it home at this church over and over. That's why I harp on it. I would, hate, I would love to not harp on it. I'd love to come in here and be like, everybody just sit, relax, and watch the show. It's all going to be awesome today. I'd love to do that. 
Because then I'd never have to hear from anybody. I'd never have to fight with anybody about a serving role or like why they're slacking on it or why they stopped doing it or why they, I don't have to do any of that. I'd love to just come in here and preach every Sunday. It'd be awesome. But I know enough to know that the highest goal is supposed to be to love each other. And if we don't get plugged into spots and roles and places where we can serve and love each other, eventually, see you later. Just the way it is. I'm not even saying you're the devil. I'm just saying it's just the way it is, and I love you. And so I harp on it because I want more for you. I want the full experience for you. So you need a new purpose. Look back at the verse I shared earlier, 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. Look at this verse again. No one has ever seen God. I kind of drove that home, right? No one can see God. No one knows what he's like. No one gets to see his character. No one gets to see him face to face. But if you will love and serve each other, everything God is will come to full expression in you. Other people will only see God and know who he is if they see you loving each other. That's God's plan. It's his highest goal for your life. Do you get it? This is how people meet God. They don't meet him sitting alone in the woods by themselves, figuring it all out by their, on, their, on their lonesome. They figure it out when they see you loving each other like God says to love each other. And they're like, man, that's crazy. Why are they even doing that? Why are they giving of their money? Why are they giving of their time? Why are they giving their abilities to those people? I don't get it. That's God coming out in us. You need a new purpose, and you need a new strategy. Now I want to show you. I showed you Jesus' pattern. I showed you his purpose. I showed you where he got his security. Now how does he do it all? His strategy. Now I need a strategy that doesn't revolve around pleasing myself when I wake up each morning, which is most people's strategy, just for the record. I wake up each morning, and everything I do is about making myself comfortable, richer, happier, safer, better off. That's it. I need a strategy that doesn't revolve around just pleasing me and my desires every morning. Here's how Paul writes it in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. So let me ask you, this week, leading up to today, how many times did you look out for somebody else's interest instead of your own? Because I want to, I want to remind you, you don't get to take days off, and you don't get to pick and choose who you're going to do that for. It's unconditionally for everybody around you all the time. You can set up some boundaries, but can you even think of a time in the last week that you put the, the benefit of someone else ahead of your own? Or was everything we did just for us? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, but don't I deserve to be taken care of? I mean, don't I deserve to take care of me? Well, didn't Jesus? But I can't find the days that he took off. The days that he didn't love somebody. The days when somebody walked up to him and he said, not today. Today you're going to be my enemy. <laughs> today, today I don't have the capacity 
to love you. I'm too tired. He gave it all up. He gave it all up. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says this. Love does not demand its own way. It gives it all up. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, there's this great dialogue on what love really looks like. And it says, if I could speak every language on earth, if I could even speak like the angels in heaven, if I had all the knowledge there existed in the universe to be able to predict and tell you what was coming in the future, and if I had faith so great that I could move mountains with just my belief, even then, if I didn't love other people, it would all be worthless. Because love is the highest goal. Do you get it? So here's Jesus' strategy. I think I can sum it up for you in two pieces. It's the same two pieces we need to live out this new strategy. Here they are. You ready? Accept their uniqueness. Jesus was the master at accepting everybody else's uniqueness. What do I mean? I mean, you look at the crowd that surrounded Jesus. It was adults and kids. It was women and men. It was Jews and Gentiles. It was rich and poor. It was fishermen, doctors, lawyers, tax collectors, prostitutes. And it's like we're just waiting for all the people just like us to come into our life. And we don't want to be around anybody that's different than us. We just want this homogenous group that just looks and sounds and acts just like us. And anybody outside of that, I don't have the capacity to love you. But no, Jesus accepted their uniqueness. You say, well, I'd hang out with Jews and Gentiles. I know you would, but what about Democrats and Republicans? Right? Come on now, let's get real about it. Who are the groups that you've excluded from loving? Because I bet they're all over our county. But Jesus accepted uniqueness. He wasn't looking for superhumans. He was looking for surrendered hearts. And look at the group that hung around him. They were so diverse. But he also affirmed their value. So you got to accept their uniqueness and you got to affirm their value. Jesus never belittled people. He never acted like some people were better than others. If anything, he did the opposite. He took all the belittled groups in that culture, people like Gentiles, people like women, people like children, and he raised their level up to all the same as Jewish men. And he said, they're no different than us. He gave them value. It made me think of the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Sometimes we sell that back at the three source. I don't think it's back there now. I think we're sold out of it, but where he describes the five different ways that people receive love. And Jesus did all of those, depending on who he was around. He constantly affirmed their needs and their values for time, touch, words, service, and gifts. He did those all the time. It's a great book if you want to love your spouse better or love your kids, understand their hearts better. But he gave value to everybody around him. Is that you? When you walk through the week, on any given week, does your week look like somebody who is accepting of everybody's uniqueness around you and somebody who is affirming the value as a human being of everybody you come in contact with? Or are there some people you just walk on by without caring about? Are there some people that are just below you because they're poor or they're dirty? You size up your own week. Is it loving or is it a feeling? Is it a choice to sacrifice self for the benefit of others or is it a feeling? First John 4 
Actually, let me give you Romans 15, 7. Look at this. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. You are robbing God of glory when you refuse to love somebody who's not like you. And look at 1 John 4, 19. Here's why we do it. We love because he first loved us. And it goes back to that same idea. Because God has loved you so much, you ought to love everyone else. Let love be your highest goal. Let me go back to what I said back at the beginning. Unless you fully experience the love of Jesus, you cannot, you cannot love other people correctly. You can't. Because he isn't somebody who loves. He is love. So how could you know what love is if you don't even know the one who is love? Do you understand where this is going? He's the only source of real love because he is love. And when you surrender your life to Jesus and you receive the free gift of eternal life he's offering you and at the same moment surrender all of your decision-making ability to his leadership, in that moment, he comes and lives inside of you and gives you love for the first time in your life. And that love can now overflow out of you, and it comes out of you as a brand new pattern, a brand new source of security, a brand new purpose for living, and a brand new strategy for each day. It comes out of you, and everything in you is made brand new. That's what Christianity is. I, I don't know if somebody tried to convince you that Christianity was going to church or, or, or it was reading your Bible on your own or, 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 or it was like memorizing a Bible verse or it was giving some amount of money or something like Those things are all awesome. But if you don't have God's love inside of you, flowing out of you, loving each other, you don't know God. Can we just be on? I don't like it either. Like some of you are looking at me like, I don't like that. Well, I don't like it either. I wish I could just like wave my magic wand and make it all like cookies and roses for you. But, but is that not what God said? That those who do not love do not know God because God himself is love? You get a brand new approach to life and everything becomes new. And so I just want to leave you this, with this. When I was a kid, I was sitting in my backyard by myself after church one Sunday. And I had this conversation with God, and I don't remember it exactly word for word, but maybe it's the same kind of conversation you need to have today. It sounded something like this. God, I don't know everything I'm supposed to know. And I want you to know I still don't know everything I'm supposed to know. I don't know everything I'm supposed to know. I don't have all the answers, but I know you died for me. You sacrificed yourself for my benefit. And I want to live with you someday. And so from this day forward, I'll believe whatever you tell me. And I'll do whatever you say. In, in that moment, I received God's free gift of eternal life and simultaneously gave up control of my own life to do whatever he says to do. That's salvation. And anything else is fake love. That's real love. And I don't know if you've ever done that. 
I don't, I don't know, somebody told you to pray some prayer one time and you prayed the prayer and so like the magic prayer then saves you for eternity. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know. All I'm telling you is if you haven't experienced the real love of God by accepting his free gift that he's offering you of eternal life and simultaneously surrendering your own will for making decisions in your life to what he says, then you don't know God and you don't know real love. And I want your families to be stronger, better, and healthier this week. So I wanna challenge you. I'm gonna pray for us. And I wanna challenge you while I pray just to have a similar conversation with God that I had growing up. So will you close your eyes with me? And in this moment, maybe for the first time in your life, you need to say to God, God, I wanna live with you someday. I don't know all the answers, but I'll accept the gift you're offering me. And at the same time, God, I'll give up control of my life to you. And from now on, whatever you say I'll do, no matter how I feel, I'm gonna make the choice to love because you are love. And in that moment, I promise you, God will transform you, in, transform you into something brand new. Will you pray those words? Will you tell that to God and experience real life, real love, maybe for the first time? And then will you go out of here this week and will you make it a priority to put love into practice in your life? Not a, not a feeling, a choice to sacrifice yourself for the benefit of others. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for, for teaching me from your word. Help me to be more loving, God. Help the people in our church that are here right now to have enough courage to step out of their comfort zone and surrender their life to you so that they would experience your love and then in turn be able to give it back to other people in their life. In Jesus' name.